episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, we are going to continue uh, our our work through the book of Judges as we do a uh, historical, uh, grammatical historical and redemptive historical methodology to understand uh, this book. Uh, We are using the book of Judges as kind of a paradigm for for how to do this uh, as we walk through this, these passages together. So I hope that this is uh, a blessing to you and a resource to you and also uh, helps you uh, learn how to work your way through a historical narrative from the Old Testament. So with that, we are going to dive right in. Uh, picking up where we left off, we ended at the end of chapter 12, last time dealing with the last of the minor judges, and now we are going to jump into the Samson cycle. Enjoy the show. in chapter 13. Um, it is a promising and it's somewhat expectant beginning. The, the author seems to want us to come to this passage thinking that we, we finally get the judge that we are looking for. Um, so there is a promising and expected beginning. There's, there's two the- theophanic visits by God. There is, there's two visits by God early in this chapter. Uh, and, and there is a birth of a son to a barren woman, right? It, um, and, and this is usually an indicator of a special child who is going to do things, great things, for God's purposes. So you would come to this expecting, like, this is the dude. This is the guy who's going to do great things. He's dedicated to Yahweh before his conception, and yet, as we read through the Samson cycle, it becomes crashingly apparent that Samson actually accomplishes less than any of the other major judges. Um, so we'll see that as it goes. Now, this start, his life starts with a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow is a way that a non-Levite could achieve priestly levels of sanctification. We see this in Numbers 6. 
Now, there's three basic prohibitions to a Nazarite vow. They are to refrain from wine, strong drink. Um, and in fact, they're, they're actually supposed to refrain from anything that comes from the vine, even grapes or raisins, right? So um, they're to refrain from cutting their hair for the length of the vow. And they're, avoid, uh, they're to avoid coming into contact with a dead body. <clears throat> now, that we, we have to remember that along with this is the concept of sanctification. Now, this is not necessarily, although it's related, the New Testament concept of spiritual sanctification. This is ceremonial sanctification. This is the, the, the concept of the Israelites uh, being set apart for God as a kingdom of priests. This is what the food laws and the uncleanliness laws were there for. They were to help keep Israel separate or sanctified, set apart from the other nations. This isn't necessarily about moral purity. It's about ceremonial purity. This is a, this is a big distinction. And I think a lot of times people misunderstand this when they read through the Old Testament and they read these, these sanctification laws these purity laws, and they think that this is somehow God saying, well, you know, it's it's immoral, for example, to touch a dead body. Well, no, there's nothing immoral about burying your loved ones. It just made you ceremonially unclean. You were unsanctified and had to go through a purification uh, right to get, um, to get ceremonially clean again, but it's not necessarily immoral, right? The priests were set apart even further than the regular Israelites because of an additional specific res, uh, regulations, right? So the priests were kind of this, this higher order of sanctification. But, the, but now you have this Nazarite vow from number six, which allows a non-Levite to kind of attain that level of sanctification. So the that Nazarite vow was just a way for a regular Israelite to be set apart as the priests were, right? So it's this priestly level of sanctification of set-apartness. Now, next we get to the narrative cycle. Uh, this is uh, how the story actually uh, progresses. Now, there's the unusual, there's some unusual components here. Uh, sorry, there's some usual components here, not unusual components. Uh, and that is Israel did evil, uh, and then God sold them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years years, um, right? So we see this, again, this ever-increasing length of time that they were in servitude before God raises up um, a deliverer. However, in the normal cycle, the, the third component here is not present. That, that component of Israel crying out to Yahweh for help. Um, remember, at, at this point with Samson, we are pretty much at the bottom of the toilet bowl in regards to the cyclical nature. Um, and so it's not surprising that even after they did evil, even after they were sold into slavery, even after they've been oppressed, Israel is still seen as, uh, as so fundamentally wicked that they still... Um, they become so hardened that they still do not cry out uh, to Yahweh in, in, in repentance or even for help. They are absolutely silent. Um, so when we read <clears throat> uh, verse 1, it says, Now the sons of Israel began, uh, again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord handed them over to the Philistines for 40 years. Here we then get to the narrative, uh, and, and there was a man of Zorah, for example, goes on to start describing um the, 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 the life, the rising up of the judge. But nowhere in here is that normal cycle of the Israelites repenting and crying out. Uh, Judah 
is is unwill or sorry Judah is willing to accept the Philistine status quo actually we see this in 15 uh, 11 um, let me let me skip to, to 1511 uh, so in 1511 it says 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us what then is it that you have done to us? And he said to them, just as they did to me, so I've done to them. And we'll talk about um, we'll talk about that a little bit. But we see here in this historical background that the Phili- the, the Israelites, the, the men of Judah, have kind of just accepted that the Philistines are over them, and they're complaining when Samson actually does start becoming a spur to the Philistines, as kind of a spur in their boots, so to speak. They actually complain to him, what, you know, what have you done? <laughs> and um, don't you know that they are, uh, you know, rulers over us? Um, there is some parallel in Samson. So the Israel, uh, Israel shows no evidence of wanting to be delivered, and Samson will show no evidence of wanting to fight the Philistines. Right, so we, we see a parallel there. Uh, only twice will Samson call to Yahweh during this entire long narrative, this multi-chapter narrative, uh, and he'll again accomplish less than any other judge because of his disobedience, and that will parallel. He's, he's kind of walking in, in tow, in tandem with the disobedience of Israel as a whole. Now, what about the character of Samson? Samson's main downfall is his lust for women who are unacceptable to Yahweh, um, for, for, for foreign women who do not believe in Yahweh. He's driven by his passions, by what he sees, uh, and we see this um, uh, in, in, uh, in, in some of his statements. Uh, Samson is helpless when it comes to women, uh, Timnah gets him to tell her the riddle. Uh, Delilah gets him to tell her his se- the secret of his strength like an ox uh, and leads him like an ox to the slaughter, which is, by the way, an interesting comment in 14.4, which we read, uh, this does not excuse, uh, th- th- it doesn't excuse Samson's disobedience, but means that God can take the disobedience of Samson and use it for his own purposes. So if we, if we look in Judges 14.4, Uh, It says, however, his father and mother did not know that this was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. And at that time, the Philistines were ruling over him. This is this is uh, speaking of his taking of uh, of Timnah. It's not God's. It's not it's not the passage saying that it's Samson's disobedience was acceptable, um, but that that overall um, was from it it was by the Lord. It was by the Lord's decree because he was seeking an occasion uh, to to do battle against the Philistines. Um, Again, we see some parallels here um, to, to Israel. Right. Notice what uh, what Samson says when he when he says uh, basically to his parents to go take Timnah uh, for them for or for him. Uh, he says, I, I saw a woman uh, in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So now go and get her f- uh, for me as a wife. Um, and when his parents say, like, is there is there no you know women? Uh, Samson says, go get her for me because she is right in my eyes. Right, so uh, uh, Samson here kind of parallels that that judge's statement of everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, for for Samson, this was right in his own eyes, uh, even though it was uh, unacceptable according to the law and according to his parents. Uh, Samson is chasing after other women uh, can be seen as a parallel to Israel's chasing after other gods. Um, so again, especially if you keep the theme of adultery, idolatry as uh, as adultery, as harlotry uh, throughout the Old Testament, 
Samson here seeking after another woman uh, is a parallel here to Israel seeking after uh, another god, a, a wife of harlotry, right? Um, there's physical licentiousness on uh, Samson's part that is a parallel to the spiritual licentiousness, so to speak, of Israel. Now, Samson's not concerned with keeping the laws of uncleanness, right? No, we, we notice in the passage, in the example where he eats honey out of a dead lion's carcass, uh, and he gives some to his parents, which makes him and them unclean, right? So, so he seems to have no problem uh, in, in, in breaking the law with a, with a high hand. Uh, it, it's either that he doesn't care about it, or the narrator is subtly hinting at that nobody is aware of these laws anymore, although uh, it does seem to be more towards the former. Uh, he drinks wine at the marriage feast, again, which is a violation of the, the Nazarite vow. And he kills a thousand Philistines single-handedly with the fresh jawbone of a donkey, right? The jawbone of a recently slain donkey. So he's just touching death on death on death again. Um, so he breaks all of these uh, parts of his Nazarite vow. Now, Samson is not motivated to deliver Israel from the Philistines, but rather he's motivated by personal revenge in his acts against the Philistines, right? So uh, he is an individual acting against the Philistines only when they cross him personally. So you don't have this kind of do-gooder judge. You don't have this judge who is trying to do good, trying to deliver God's people from an oppressive uh, regime. Here, he is only out for himself. He is only delivering for his own selfish reasons. He acts just like the Philistines. And we see that uh, in Judges chapter 15, verse 10. Uh, you'll, you'll notice where he said, So the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? And they said, uh, We have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Right? So he acts just like them. The Philistines are, are seeking personal revenge. They, you know, Samson did this to me. We're going to get back at him. Uh, and that is Samson's, uh, the, the justification that Samson gives uh, as, as well. Um, so uh, he, kills, he then kills uh, 30 Philistines to deliver 30 garments in payment for finding out about his riddle, right? A mighty achievement, which is motivated only by his anger uh, and his revenge. Uh, he ties together the tails of foxes and fa uh, fastens a torch to them, burning the grain of the Philistines in response to his wife being given to another man. We read this again uh, in 14.3 uh, through 5. Samson's relationship to God also seems rather self-serving. So uh, in 15.18, we read, quote, then he became very thirsty, and he called to the Lord and said, You have handed this great victory over to your servant, and now am I to die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Uh, right? So, so <clears throat> one of the very few times that he calls on to the Lord, it's not even calling on to the Lord to give him strength to defeat the Philistines. Right? It's, it's, it's calling on the Lord uh, to, for, for selfish reasons to give him something to drink. Right now, granted, he does seem to understand that it was the Lord who handed them over to him. He does call himself the Lord's servant, and he understands that that the Lord handed this great victory over to him, which is which is good. We do see that in there, but again, um, his his conduct seems to be rather selfish, uh, and this parallels incidents in Israel's life, such as in Exodus seventeen one through seven and Numbers twenty two uh, to thirteen. His second prayer is to bring down the temple 
of Dagon at the very end of his life. And he says, let me revenge myself for my two eyes. So again, his second prayer, while, while he is avenging and, he, and, he's, and he's defeating the Philistines at the temple of Dagon and he destroys this, this pagan temple, Again, his motivation just seems to be selfish. He's, 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 he's praying the Lord so that he can revenge himself for them gouging out his two eyes. Um, Samson, uh, the, the irony here is that Samson accomplished more in his death um, by, by taking out this pagan temple and, and, and overthrowing some of the power base of the Philistines than he did is in, in his entire life that he lived for Yahweh, right? His the, apparently it seems we're supposed to take away from this that his whole life was somewhat of a pursuit of his own self-interests, and if he could do good and if he could deliver something or take out some Philistines on the way, then he would do that. But his motivations were were very self-seeking. Now, how are we supposed to interpret Samson? Okay, it's a common and popular misconception that Samson is a positive role model because of his dedication to God um, and the fact that he's mentioned in Hebrews in the Hall of Faith. So are we supposed to see Samson as this positive role model? Do we, do we read through and see Samson as this hero of faith that we're supposed to emulate? This is a complex question. We've seen this previously with Gideon um, and, and with some of the other judges, right? The, the, the reason for some of the positive evaluations of Samson um, is the singular occurrence of Samson in the New Testament, again, in the chapter of faith in Hebrews 11. Uh, but we should remember that not all the individuals in Hebrew 11 display the same level of faith, but all of them, even to the smallest degree, did manifest faith. And that's what's being called out in Hebrews 11. Samson's faith uh, is seen in his trust in Yahweh to hear his prayer and to strengthen him one last time, even if his motives were for personal revenge uh, by and large. Now, some see Samson as a type of Christ, with the statement at the end of his life seen as a vindication of Samson's life in, in 1630. So if we look uh, in Judges 1630, uh, again, we read, uh, And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed outwards powerfully, so that the house fell on the governors and all the people who were in it. And the dead whom he killed at his death was more than those whom he killed during his lifetime. Um, so he did somewhat vindicate himself. He took out the governors. He took out this false temple. He delivered kind of uh, a little bit Israel. He, he, was, he was more victorious in his death than his life, if we're going to say it uh, in kind of that romanticized uh, way. Um, so some would see Samson, like Christ, was raised up by God. He was announced by an angel, conceived miraculously. He was rejected by his people and handed over to a pagan overlords, and his saving work consummated in his own death. Now, in that way, he does seem to be a forerunner of the greater Savior. And, and, and B. Webb uh, makes this argument in, in his article called The Serious Reading of the Samson uh, Story. Um, so there, do, there does seem to be indicators there um, where, where Christ is the true Samson and where all the ways that Samson failed, Christ will succeed. Um, this fails to read the Samson cycle in the larger narrative context of the downward spiral of the cycle of Judges, I think. Um, 
Samson, so while in, in one very, very minuscule, superficial way, we can understand it that way, I just don't think that that's the best way to understand the Samson cycle. So while that, that might be kind of a, a tertiary or kind of a far-flung Christological connection here, maybe, um, but really that's probably more of a function of all of the judges march us towards seeing that we need Christ, the true judge, the true savior. Um, and so in Samson, in that regard, points us to Christ. Um, but I'm not sure we necessarily should draw such a straight line from Samson uh, as a Christ figure, so to speak. Um, uh, Samson's motivations seem to be driven entirely by self-gratification. There's no concern for the law or the holiness of God. He's motivated by revenge not by by uh, not even by uh, love for his own people, uh, but definitely not uh, for redemption and for salvation. Uh, and and whereas Samson was was selfish and self-motivated, Christ emptied himself. He came to fulfill the law of God, not to abuse it. Uh, he was not motivated by personal revenge in any of his actions. So I think there's uh, a discontinuity there. All right. So thank you again for joining us as we wrap up this, this section uh, on the final judge. Next time we will jump into uh, the very the very end of the cycles of apostasy uh, and deliverance in the double conclusion of the book of Judges. Thank you again for joining. Good night and God bless.